From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for inviting me into your home, as always. Last month, we missed our, uh, our, our visit with Rosemary Ellen Guiley because it was Canadian Thanksgiving. So we're going to make up for that tonight. And uh, Rosemary, standing by, is going to be with us for the full hour. Here's what's going to happen. In the first half, we're going to do our what's become sort of a regular feature on the program, a regular monthly feature. We're going to do our Paranormal News Roundup. And then in the second half, or as we say in Radioland, at the bottom of the hour, at the bottom of the hour, we're going to throw open the phone lines, and I'll give you an opportunity to call in, perhaps share some of your encounters with things paranormal. We haven't done this in a while on the sh- on the show. Uh, so if you have had uh, encounters with uh, poltergeists, hauntings, shadow people, uh, possessions, curses, you name it, at the bottom of the hour, we can actually op- open up the lines a little earlier than that, but we'll start taking calls at the bottom of the hour with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Or maybe you've got a question for Rosemary. You've got an entity in your house that you need uh, to get rid of. Uh, then now is your opportunity. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, of course, is one of the leading experts in the metaphysical and paranormal fields with 59 books and counting. I think actually it's now 60. Uh, on a, way, a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. I have most of them in my library at home. Her work is translated into 15 languages, and her present work uh, focuses on spiritual growth and development, the afterlife, and spirit communications, psychic skills, dream work for well-being, working with angels, past and parallel lives, problem hauntings, entity contact experiences, and investigation of unusual paranormal activity. And she's done groundbreaking research on shadow people and the jinn. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Hi, Richard. I'm in West Virginia this weekend, and it's been a very intense but wonderful weekend at an annual psychic fair here. I was giving a presentation on dreams and uh, using dreams for creativity and problem-solving, and uh, then I did psychic readings uh, for a good chunk of the weekend. Uh, so that, that we're bound tomorrow. Doing the, doing those readings, uh, I mean, is that? I would imagine that would be physically exhausting. It really is. It's more tiring than uh, giving talks. You know, I can do an all-day workshop, which uh, takes a, quite a bit of energy. But uh, readings take um, a different kind of conver- uh, concentration and energy. Uh, you ha- you're tuning into people, and uh, in doing a lot of readings, you're tuning into a lot of different energies. Um, I'm uh, aligning myself with their emotional body uh, to get information about uh, what's going on in their lives and things that they're dealing with. Most people come to readings for direction. They're looking for uh, new insights and direction, And uh, some of that comes down from the spiritual planes as well. So, um, you know, by the end of the day, that can can really flatten you. A lot going on, obviously, in terms of uh, paranormal news. And uh, uh, recently, there was another gathering in the Vatican of some of the Catholic Church's top exorcists. And this is something that, uh, for quite a while, they didn't really want to talk about, certainly in the wake of the exorcist movies. It was all very sort of hush-hush, and then, of course, there was a very famous uh, incident, widely publicized, when uh, Pope John Paul II actually performed an exorcism 
in uh, uh, in, in the Vatican on a, on a woman who was uh, apparently possessed, uh, and now uh, we have Pope Francis declaring his support uh, for exorcisms. What do you make of that? They're certainly more out in the open about it, and they really should be, because the exorcisms have been performed throughout history by every religion, um, and an, uh, they've been an important component of uh, spiritual ways of dealing with the dark side influences that can happen to people. And uh, when uh, the Protestant Reformation happened, uh, there were famous exorcism battles between the Catholics and the Protestants in Europe. It was uh, sort of a display of power, like uh, our spiritual connection is better than yours sort of thing. And uh, many famous cases of possessed nuns and monks and uh, cases very similar to the movie The Exorcist that really gripped audiences. And then uh, in more modern times, the church started having a, a rather uneasy relationship with exorcism. It, it's... Uh, uh, fell into the backwaters of superstition. A lot of priests didn't uh, want to be involved in it or uh, weren't even given the education and training about exorcism. And uh, now uh, it's coming back out into the open. People have genuine problems with dark side entities that can exert mental influence, very oppressive influence, uh, can be very damaging in life, and in the worst-case scenarios, possession cases, where it is a complete takeover. And uh, people uh, who have, uh, you know, religious training need to be educated about it. So the Catholics, of course, are going to have a very Catholic take on what causes these problems and why and what the remedy should be, and the Protestants have their own versions. But uh, I am glad to see the Catholics uh, step up to the plate again and be open about uh, things that have really gone on in the background. You know, the exorcisms have been performed. Uh, this uh, group that was uh, formed some years ago uh, to educate uh, exorcists in the church has been a stepchild for um, some time, and now it's getting the recognition it deserves. The International Association of Exorcists, and there were more than 300 members uh, who attended the, the, the convention at the Vatican. So uh, so this, the fact that it's growing, this International Association of Exorcists, it's now being more publicly acknowledged uh, by uh, the Pope, for example. You're saying that this is, is, is demonstrating that possession is a growing problem. Well, certainly a negative influence by spirits is a growing problem, and these are various forms of possession. Um, you know, the average person, when you say possession of them, they think of things like the exorcist, really extreme cases, but there are much lesser forms of possession as well, where people are just sort of like under the influence. They uh, become um, uh, depressed and... Uh, their relationships fall apart, they have trouble sleeping, their health begins to deteriorate, and uh, those can be um, the cause caused by unpleasant spirits who become attached to them. Why is it a growing might, problem? Why is it increasing? Why is it on the, uh, the increase? A number of reasons. Uh, I think there's more vulnerability today because uh, people feel exposed. Uh, they're not as secure as they used to be. The dark side seizes opportunity where they find weakness. 
And when people are in emotional turmoil, that does create uh, weaknesses in people's spiritual defenses. And uh, it doesn't mean that you uh, give yourself over to vice and, you know, depravity or anything like that, but your natural buffers just become weakened, and this varies quite a bit with individuals. So there's a lot of opportunistic kinds of negative influences. Then we have an increased attention uh, to the paranormal, and uh, this has encouraged some people to do experimentation with spirit summoning that's uh, downright dangerous, and uh, they unwittingly invite things into their uh, their sphere of influence into their energy field that uh, then latches onto them like a, a, a predator and uh, they can't get rid of it. So um, uh, then we have the, the influences of vice and uh, people who are seeking power through manipulation, greed, violence, those sorts of, of uh, things to gain power, fame, uh, money, whatever. And this uh, attracts another kind of opportunistic negative spirit. I, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that in, in many of the cases I've dealt with in recent years, just in terms of problem paranormal activity, and uh, this has happened to uh, fellow investigators as well, um, people will often go to religious authorities first for help, whether they're Catholic or Protestant or whatever, and they're turned away because either uh, the clerics don't believe in that sort of thing, or if they do believe it, they're just not equipped to deal with it. So I am glad to see more training out in the open. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website. I was hosting Coast on uh, on Friday, and uh, during the open line segment, Rosemary, I received a number of calls. People had these entities, and they were coming to me for advice. And I, I, I said, listen, you know, I'm not qualified. So I, I told them to to uh, to, to uh, contact you. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> Uh, I don't at all, and in fact, uh, uh, I probably got some of those emails because I I have gotten some uh, just in the last day or so. Well, you can blame uh, me. With problems. All right, we'll come back and we'll talk about a strange box and its contents in Macedonia, uncovered by a farmer recently. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, uh, Tim, in the other room, why don't we uh, open up the uh, the lines and uh, make those available to you if you want to uh, get on board now. And uh, starting in about uh, 10 minutes or so, we can start to take some uh, some calls with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal uh, researcher, investigator, who joins us uh, once a month on the program. And uh, we're just uh, nicely into our paranormal news roundup. Lots going on. Uh, and now to Macedonia uh, we go, where a farmer there uh, claims to have uncovered a... Um, uh, he was plowing a field and uh, ran into a box that was chained shut. And um, I guess being somewhat brave and curious and perhaps holding, uh, hoping it uh, contained gold or something that might get him his own reality show, he opened the box. And what did he find? A rather strange-looking skull. Rosemary, I'm looking at a picture of it, and it looks, uh, A, it looks pretty legitimate. Uh, it looks real. Um, and B, it uh, doesn't look like any animal I've ever seen. What do you make of this skull? What is it? Uh, well, <clears throat> I don't think it's a werewolf, and uh, I, I have to dismiss this one out of hand, Richard. It falls into the category of 
uh, stuff we see every now and then in the paranormal where someone claims to have found physical remains of a supernatural entity, and it winds up uh, being uh, a hoax. And I think it, this falls into that category. And there are a number of things that give it away. Uh, one is, uh, in, in the original sense of the word, a werewolf is a human being who transforms into a wolf. And so uh, if you were going to find a, a skull of this individual in, in wolf form, it would be a wolf skull, uh, not something that looks misshapen and distorted like, like this one does. And uh, observers have commented that this looks more like a baboon skull uh, or maybe even a small dog skull. It does have uh, features to it that uh, you can certainly see a baboon in it. It's Hollywood and entertainment, which have, have given us these images of werewolves as being monstrous things uh, that um, are wildly distorted or giant in size with, um, you know, unusual features. Uh, secondly, um, the box didn't seem to be very old. It seemed to be very new. Someone uh, commented that um, from the picture you could tell that uh, the metal on the box wasn't very rusted out. It hadn't been underground very long. Uh, so who would have planted it there and why? And it has an inscription, which the news article didn't translate, but um, some enterprising person ran through uh, Google translation and came up with the, the three words, uh, attention, danger, werewolf, highly <laughs> unlikely. Uh, for, for someone, for, for a genuine artifact to, to be buried like this, and why just a skull? Uh, so too many questions. It's too questionable. There have even been uh, some doubts cast upon whether or not it's an entire skull or just part of a skull that's also been modified with clay. Uh, and until the skull would actually be examined by uh, an authority, uh, we, we just have to put this down as another one of those crazy hoaxes that just goes around the Internet every now and then. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Her website, visionaryliving.com. Uh, All right, so not a werewolf, this uh, skull that was uncovered in, in Macedonia, uh, perhaps a baboon skull. Uh, I want to move over to uh, this side of the pond, and there's a great story recently, and very well written, too, uh, I might add, in the New York Times about this uh, this bar in Brooklyn uh, that uh, seems to be uh, haunted. Uh, what, what can you tell me about this Brooklyn bar? Uh, I mean, it's a great story. It's called uh, it's called it the really Sweetwater. It really is Sweetwater. Yeah. Um, and I, now I've not been to Sweetwater myself, but I have been to similar establishments in New York City and other cities where uh, there are bars and restaurants that are haunted by a certain range of phenomena related to uh, patrons or former owners. Uh, sometimes the bars and restaurants are in buildings that were once residential, um, which seems to be the case here. These are legitimate hauntings. Uh, and uh, New York City and environs seems to be home to um, activity of this sort. Uh, this has all the hallmarks of genuine residual haunting, lights that go on and off, uh, glasses that uh, exploded, um, people feeling a presence, seeing apparitions. Uh, there was a, a comment in the article about when uh, there was some renovation work being done. There, were, there was a box found with some small bones in it. It looked like kind of a burial thing or a memento thing, small animal bones. 
uh, a small ring. And uh, after after those items were unearthed and taken out of their resting place and put on display, and one of the busboys even took the ring, that seemed to kick up activity. And that conforms with a very long-standing beliefs about disturbing the peace, uh, burial peace, and that if something had been buried there along with mementos, uh, disturbing it um, might kick up activity. Uh, quite legitimate to me. It's a place I would love to go and investigate. Yes, that's the uh, the Sweetwater Restaurant, uh, which I guess it's been recently uh, recently reopened with with new owners. But the identity of the of the ghost. Uh, who, who is this uh, ghost supposed to be? Well, usually in cases like this, uh, people get some idea of who the ghost might be. And uh, here we have people feeling that uh, it's a woman named Anna Smith, who was the daughter of a family, uh, the Sheka family, uh, who uh, bought the building in, I, I think it was like the mid-1920s, It was a boarding house originally, and she had actually lived there, uh, where we find cases of a personality lingering at a place. It's usually someone who has lived on the uh, premises and who has a strong emotional attachment to it. So that fits uh, a very well-established type of haunting in the paranormal as well. It could very well be her. Um, People have... Uh, a sense of catching her apparition, and that it must be her uh, because she was very well known uh, to uh, people in the neighborhood. Uh, she lived there a long time, uh, and um, um, people like that will often leave uh, residual emotional energy behind when they pass on, and it becomes part of a haunting syndrome. We've got uh, a caller joining us from Ohio. It's John who apparently had a similar experience. John, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, sir. Thank you. Good to talk to you. You too. Um, hello, Rosemary. I had an um, experience. Um, I'm a big fan of yours. I watch you a lot of times on the on the vampire shows and on TV. Well, thank yeah. you. You're welcome. And um, I have an experience that happened to my friend and I, and I, I never heard anybody really talk about anything like this that happened, but we were, we were sitting in my driveway in his car, and we were sitting listening to the radio, and it was a sort I guess it was this time of year and the moon was out and so there was pretty you know it was there was moon coming down through the through the light it was pretty lit up in the driveway in the car and that and my friend looked over and he started laughing and he pointed over to the door and on on my driver's side on on the right where the door we opened the door handle there and um we saw a pair of are you familiar with like the California Ray-Ban glasses what they look like the sort of like the Blues Brothers type the black shades well there was yeah. a pair of black shades um, on the side of the door, just, I mean, sitting there, my friend and I just looked, and I, I can't, we just still can't believe it to this day, and I put my hand in front of the light, in front of the light to see if it was just a reflection or something, and it wasn't. The light, it stayed there, so we, we have no, absolutely no idea, I don't know if it was something trying to come through, or if it was an entity or a being or something from another dimension. But John, you say they were they were they were lying there. Do you mean they were hovering there? They weren't no, lying. They weren't resting on something. No, it was like a shadow, Richard. It was like the shadow. You, I mean, I could touch it, but you couldn't. Um, it was like a, like a shadow. I mean, they weren't. It wasn't physically. It wasn't a physical. You know, 
it was just like a black shadow, like a shape, the exact shape of a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses, and they were on the door. And I, we looked at it, and we looked at it, and we watched it for about, I'd say, maybe five minutes, and then it, it sort of just faded away. And, it, and just to this day, we still, I've never heard anyone tell a story like that or have that happen. Everybody sees like maybe a, a head or an entity or, you know, an apparition. But this was just a pair of sunglasses, and it's just the strangest thing. And I'm just—I've been baffled. And I just wondered if maybe Rosemary would has ever had anyone have an experience like that, or if she could give me some insight on that. That is an odd one, Rosemary. You ever heard anything like that before? Uh, not quite, Richard and John. Uh, this is very unusual. Uh, just just to see like a pair of glasses, but it's not unusual to get. Um, semi-formed impressions of things that uh, are interdimensional in nature. And some of what you picked up on, uh, there are dark entities like shadow forms. They uh, will often not be complete uh, when they're perceived. It can be just like a head or a, a very vague shape. They're out and uh, in the world and, and uh, are, are seen in outside locations. And uh, if you could find out something about the area you were in. You might discover that uh, it, it has a history of um, mysterious sightings or hauntings. It could be one of these, like, thin dimensional uh, boundary areas, you know, a portal area. Um, you might have also picked up on some sort of, of residue. Um, and why it would be in glasses uh, sometimes we can't even answer these questions. There are trickster entities out there, too, who like to uh, mess around with people, and they're shapeshifters, and they'll come up with some um, very odd manifestation that puzzles people, and uh, it, they're unsettling um, because nobody knows what it is. The way it uh, appeared and faded out, it sounds residual to me. It was very strange. It, like I said, it just the, no, nothing else came. We were sitting, you know, we thought maybe we'd see a head or something come through, or just. And, but no, it was just the glasses, and I, I don't know. I, it was just so strange. I mean, but it was so clear. And, and and like I said, we tried to. We thought maybe the moon. Maybe we looked down on the seat next to us in the console. There was no sunglasses there. The moon wasn't coming through there or anything. And I just, like I said, we put our hand in front of it to block, and it was still there. Maybe it was the, uh, maybe it was uh, the Blues Brothers. Maybe it was the ghost of Jim Belushi or John Belushi, uh, rather. I don't, I don't know. Hey, <laughs> I have another real quick story, if it's okay. Um, I got about a minute here, so. Okay, um, I we were, um, when I was about 15, about 1975. I was, uh, we were at home here. My parents were out. My friend was up here, and I walked. We were sitting in the living room, and I walked. I walked into my bedroom for some reason, and I looked up on my wall, and I saw this white. Glowing face. Now, this was a face, and it was scowling at me. And I don't know what... We, we were sitting here, and I, I guess my friend and I were having a couple beers. And I don't know, maybe this was my guardian... Maybe it was my guardian angel. I, I don't know. Maybe he was mad at me because we shouldn't have been... He was trying to tell me, you know, don't do that. You're, maybe you're going down the wrong path because you're young. And I just... Uh, I, I don't know. It was I never seen anything like that. My fr I called my friend and he looked and he said I, I looked and I said look Jerry and he looked at it and he said what is that and by the time we looked it was gone. But it was a yellowish glowing face, about as round as a regular human face, and it was but it was scowling at me so mean. It's kind of it's freaked me out to this day. Wow, uh, we've heard of we talked about shadow people, Rosemary, but never kind of a white yellowish uh, face. Well, maybe it was my guardian there, angel. There are manifestations know. like that. 
and some of them are one-off, and uh, if people can't relate it to what's going on in their lives, can't make a connection uh, as to, like, um, you know, uh, some sort of spirit breaking through to impart some message, uh, we just have to chalk it up to one of those one-offs that falls into the mystery category. Mm, it, it scared. It scared me. That was the only two apparitions I've ever seen. But they're both. They're, they were both just uh, so different. You Great know? stories, John. And uh, I, I appreciate you calling in and uh, sharing. Thanks for checking in from Ohio, the you Buckeye State. All right, uh, and we will uh, continue to take some calls with Rosemary till the top of the hour. We'll. Uh, uh, Talk about whatever you know, paranormal activity that you've encountered, whether it's a poltergeist, whether it's a possession, a curse, uh, whether it's uh, uh, shadow people. Uh, what is the sort of the number one type of entity that people are having trouble with these days, Rosemary? It continues to be shadow people. This is such a common phenomenon. People encounter shadow people more than they encounter ghosts. Uh, and even though there are a lot of people out there looking for ghosts, it's the shadow people. And uh, the newest form that they're, they've been taking for the past couple of decades or so that is, is on the rise is the black-eyed children or the black-eyed people. We're calling them now because it's black-eyed adults as well as children. And um, uh, these are, uh, uh, they look human. Uh, but they have solid black eyes, and sometimes they have saw teeth, uh, and they're, um, uh, they have a damaging effect on people, just like the shadow people do. Uh, they, uh, they, want, they come up, they approach people, like in parking lots, they want help, they want to touch people, and when they do, then the person becomes a victim of bad luck, illness, uh, poltergeist phenomena in the house, even uh, f- uh, feeling some kind of attachment to them. Uh, and we're seeing a big increase in those kinds of cases. I received, an, uh, in fact, you and I talked about black-eyed uh, uh, children uh, oh, several months ago after I received an email from a woman who was in a, a Walmart parking lot late at night and uh, suddenly looked around and her car was... Uh, I wouldn't say surrounded, but there were about seven, eight of these uh, children. Many of them were wearing hoodies. And uh, they wanted her, they were very insistent, they wanted her to drive them someplace. They wanted inside her car, and she was so shaken. Uh, she just got the heck out of there. But uh, uh, you're right, these sightings of black-eyed children or black-eyed people wanting to come into your house and so forth, uh, it's, it's spreading. All right, back with uh, your calls and more of our Paranormal News Roundup with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. We'll talk about the Leonardo self-portrait that was hidden from Hitler in case it gave him magic powers. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right. Now, one of the world's most famous self-portraits is going on very rare public display in the northern Italian city of Turin. And uh, it's a 500-year-old, fragile, fading, red chalk drawing of the great one, the master, Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, but for years, many people actually believe it's got mystical powers. And at one time, it was supposedly hidden from Adolf Hitler because they thought that uh, that he might actually gain those magical powers. What can you tell me about this, about this uh, portrait of Leonardo, Rosemary? 
It's very haunting, and it's had a legend associated. Well, Leonardo da Vinci has had a variety of legends associated with him that uh, if you associated with him, uh, contemplated him, meditated on him, some of his genius would rub off on you. And this legend arose over this self-portrait uh, that if you gazed into his face, especially his eyes, uh, that that his genius would then come into you in, in, a, in a magical way. It's a very haunting uh, portrait, and interestingly, the eyes do not look directly at the viewer. They're staring off into some unknown uh, distance, and um, I, I find that rather curious. But the thing about the Nazis is they were very interested in using occult and magical powers as a way of asserting their dominance in the world and winning the war. Um, Himmler was the driving force behind that, uh, but many of the top-level Nazis participated in uh, rituals and uh, were looking for ways to harness occult power. One of the things they did was identify uh, some of the magical adepts in the country. Uh, there were many magical lodges at the time, and they uh, rounded up and even arrested some of those um, uh, adepts, uh, and they wanted to extract their secrets out of them, as though these people possessed unusual powers that could command armies of demons, for example, and uh, that the Nazis could learn how to harness that. One of those individuals was Franz Barden, and he was tortured in prison for secrets that he never gave up. The same interest could have been transferred to this portrait as well, and it was hidden during the war out of uh, the fear that if it fell into Nazi hands, uh, if the portrait did indeed have any magical power of conferring genius, that uh, the Nazis could take advantage of that. Conferring genius. Jeez, I like to get my hands on that portrait. <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci was one of the most outstanding uh, persons in, I think, all of human history. There have been many examinations of his what might have been his thought processes and the way he got his ideas and where they came from. Uh, a lot of it remains a mystery. All right, Patricia from Guelph has joined us with the teleportation problem. Patricia, you're on the line with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Yes, sir. I've been experiencing that particular phenomenon since I was very, very young, about eight, nine years old. Now, sometimes it's voluntary, sometimes it's involuntary. And when it's involuntary, it's sometimes I had a few bad scares where I never got back to myself, but... I see a lot of things that I shouldn't be seeing, and when it's voluntary, I know where I'm going and what I'm seeing and what's happening. But the problem sometimes is I can see what I'm seeing, but I don't know exactly and precisely where it is. I can see store signs or street names, or um, but not cities or whatever. I was just wondering... So how well, can I control that or find out exactly where I've been? Um, there are people who have uh, a market ability to bilocate, uh, to project. You're projecting out of body uh, to distant locations, and this is usually an ability that, that comes with a lot of intense uh, 
uh, spiritual study. Uh, you know, like um, there are paths in yoga, for example, that this is one of the superpowers that's a side effect of that. Saints have been known to bilocate. Padre Pio was quite famous for that. He would bilocate when people called on him out of emotional need, and uh, he would spontaneously uh, bilocate to a distant location to minister to them with uh, prayer and healing, for example. And uh, so in your case, the involuntary ones uh, might have an emotional connection to them, you know, events that have uh, highly charged emotional energy are um, have the capability of spontaneously pulling on your uh, your own emotional cords to, to draw you out. There are ways that you could probably uh, get it under better management, um, and uh, that would be to uh, um, consult somebody who's a spiritual master in um, the spiritual arts like yoga or the martial arts. Okay, I've got to jump in uh, here, Rosemary. Okay, we've got to uh, take a time out. We'll uh, come back, take more calls. Thank you for your call, Patricia. Fascinating. Thank you. Good luck with that. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Questions, comments for Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, researcher, author of, uh, it's about 60 books now, isn't it, Rosemary? It is, yes. Number 60 will be out in the spring. All right. Uh, the, uh, the Scotsman, interesting uh, headline here in the, uh, the Scottish newspaper, London Museum, the famous London Museum, planned to shoot and steal Nessie as in the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, what's going on here, Rosemary? Well, all of this happened, according to the records, uh, back in the 1930s, and uh, demonstrates uh, a, a lack of awareness about what these creatures really are. Uh, you know, assuming them to be something that could be captured, uh, cut apart, uh, assuming that these are uh, real physical creatures, when, in fact, all the evidence that we have now um, in cryptozoology research indicates more and more that uh, these are creatures who, who really live between worlds. They're not in our dimension. They're in, from some other dimensional reality, and uh, they cross over into ours. So they don't really have uh, a physical uh, corporeality that could ever be shot or captured. And uh, that's why we never really... I have a Bigfoot carcass around anywhere. Any of the sea monsters have never been uh, caught. Uh, Dogmen have never been caught. They've been seen and witnessed and even photographed in some cases. We have uh, that photograph of Nessie, a very controversial one. But um, uh, it, it seems that uh, whoever was behind that, uh, and the documents seem to be genuine, they just didn't have much of an awareness of what they were actually dealing with. And, but it also shows that they, they took these sightings, uh, as you say, these documents date back to the 1930s, and uh, it shows that the, the, the museums took these sightings seriously, and they, they were ready to hire bounty hunters. And, and we still find some of those kinds of beliefs today, uh, but for a long time, the, the whole field of cryptozoology, the study of unknown or mysterious creatures, um, the scientists who were involved in this 
assumed these to be real uh, creatures who were just kind of hidden species, lost or hidden species, uh, left over from perhaps primeval times. And so, therefore, they were capable of being captured. And after decades and decades of trying, with many sightings, uh, the evidence has has really swung the other way to indicate that uh, these are beings not entirely of this reality. Uh, let me just uh, share here. This is a, uh, from this article. In a letter dated March of that year, which is 1934, uh, the unnamed official, and this is from... Uh, Edinburgh's Royal Scottish Museum or the London Museum. I'm not sure which museum they're referring to, but in a letter March of that year, the unnamed official responded to questions about the museum's policy on Nessie. The message was black and white. Quote, Should you ever come within range of the monster, I hope you will not be deterred by humanitarian considerations from shooting him on the spot and sending the carcass to us in cold storage. Carriage forward. The letter stated before adding, Short of this, a flipper, a jaw, or a tooth would be very welcome. It's absolutely incredible. It really is. And then uh, on top of it, when you've got this rivalry between the the English and the and the Scottish over, you know, who could own the corpse of Nessie or a piece of Nessie, uh, it becomes uh, even more laughable. You mentioned uh, these. Uh these creatures and how they may be interdimensional. And we had that earlier caller uh, talking about this, uh, these pair of Ray-Bans that uh, sort of mysteriously em- seem to emerge from, you know, the side of his car. Uh, and you were suggesting, again, there, there could be this thin veil that exists between uh, this world and, and the next or another dimension. Why is it that we have certain locations, and, and uh, I know you've documented this in, in parts of the Hudson Valley and and uh, possibly certain parts of West Virginia. Why is it that this veil seems to be thinner in some locations than others? Some of it seems to have to do with the geophysical characteristics of the landscape. Uh, there's a profile that applies to many of these portal areas, and uh, they don't exhibit all the characteristics, but uh, any given portal will have uh, a significant number of them, and one is... Uh, the presence of uh, something in the soil that generates um, an electrical field or a magnetic field, uh, quartz, granite, crystal, uh, magnetite, and iron especially. And uh, all of these manifestations, whether they're residual or some sort of intelligent presence, uh, seems to be affected by and may even be able to manipulate magnetic fields of energy. Um, Some of the areas have unusual magnetic field anomalies. There's something in the soil that warps uh, the the magnetic field of the entire area uh, to a very high intensity, either negative or positive. And uh, these are associated with manifestations and also the ability of residual phenomena to linger in an area. High water tables, uh, strong uh, subterranean uh, streams uh, are factors as well. Um, marshy areas, um, and uh, we have also have to take into account the earth energies that have been documented in our country. In America, they haven't been well documented, unlike uh, parts of Europe and um, England. But the Earth is crisscrossed with a lot of energy lines, and these interact with each other and with 
the, um, the uh, features of the soil. Uh, in West Virginia, for example, and in parts of the East Coast where I find a lot of these uh, high-intensity areas, uh, they're often in um, um, uh, contoured land where there are uh, mountains or uh, a lot of deep valleys with a lot of streams in them, uh, more isolated energy uh, places. Uh, however, portals can exist in your backyard, too, if you've got the right configuration. So uh, these are factors that we find over and over again in these thin boundary areas. And uh, I think there really is something to it. It's, it's hard to uh, do a scientific model for it. In fact, it even defies any sort of scientific model. But yet the circumstantial evidence is very consistent. Would a place, for example, like the Skinwalker Ranch uh, near Ballard in, in Utah, uh, where there, there's this whole host of paranormal activity, real, some of it UFO-related, uh, Skinwalkers, of course, the Native American legend, the shapeshifters, uh, has anyone ever done a, a, a soil sample test out there? Uh, perhaps so, but I'm not, uh, off the top of my head, I'm not aware of one. But one of the dominant characteristics there is, and there is a very pronounced ridge. I've been out there. Uh, there's this, uh, like a backbone that literally sticks up um, uh, and runs through the property uh, where um, much of that activity was documented, although a, a much larger area is affected. And the Native Americans considered this the, the domain of the skinwalkers, and therefore, it's, it's cursed land. It's unfit for human habitation. You shouldn't trespass on it. So that's another kind of uh, energy that uh, we find in some of these areas where um, entities, who are these interdimensional entities who share the planet with us, they, they have land attachments. And uh, they're often active in areas that have the natural energy that enables them to manifest. And uh, that seems to be the case with the Skinwalker property, too. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, um, I interviewed William J. Hall, uh, the author of The World's Most Haunted House, which is, in, I, I know you're in uh, Connecticut, and uh, are you far from Bridgeport? I'm about 35, 40 miles from Bridgeport, and I've never had the chance to visit the house uh, that uh, Mr. Hall documented. I did a testimonial for his book, however, because it is a well-known case and was very well documented. Uh, and um, there is a lot of haunting activity uh, in that part of the state of Connecticut. So it, that house could sit in like a pool of energy that's conducive to uh, residual energy and spirit activity lingering. Would you, would you agree that the, the Bridgeport haunting, uh, and again, this, this, this case going back to the early 70s, I mean, thousands of people supposedly saw paranormal activity in this house, including, you know, first responders, police, firemen, uh, etc. I mean, and, and they, there were police reports written on it. This must be one of the most documented, I mean, officially documented hauntings in history. It is well documented, and um, William Hall was also aided by the fact that there were a lot of historical records that he could track down people. Uh, people who had witnessed things lived there. And uh, a lot of times that's one of the, the biggest difficulties that a paranormal investigator has is finding records to track things down. 
Um, sometimes they're missing. They can't be accessed. Nobody knows. And uh, so the portrait of this house is very thorough. Now, uh, up in Cape Cod in Massachusetts, there are similar places. There's a, a place uh, along the King's Highway, which runs out uh, toward the tip, uh, out to Provincetown, that has a very long history of houses and buildings located along that highway being intensely haunted. There's a house called the House of the Eleven Ghosts, where uh, activity has been documented for, for many decades, and first responders in that case have seen apparitions. Uh, there was um, uh, a fire in the house once, and the first responders uh, saw what looked like people trapped inside the house, and they were apparitions, uh, especially the apparition of a woman who then floated out to the lawn, and uh, I think she asked where her dog was, and uh, the first reaction of the the, uh, the fireman there was that she was a real person, and then she disappeared. Uh, and she's been seen by other people, too. So uh, these sorts of cases exist in very active pockets. I, uh, I I know a family. Uh, they uh, they attended the, the same church, and uh, their family business uh, started by the father was uh, they do crime scene cleanup. Now they don't remove bodies, but the, the aftermath you can imagine the blood and so forth. It's a horrible uh, task, and somebody has to do it, and uh, that's what they do. And uh, they have seen things that uh, when they told me about them, just curled my toes. I mean, uh, you know. It, They've they've witnessed. I mean, full on apparitions. Uh, they later f- discovered were you know the, the the deceased people that had just been removed, their body been removed from the the premises. You know, moments before they arrived. Uh, you know, on a, on a in a body bag, and uh, uh, demonic. What can only be described as demonic activity. Uh, so it's when you when you get these people sort of alone and they're not necessarily on the record. Uh, Police included, they will tell you things that will make the hackles on the back of your neck stand up. And it, it's no surprise to me uh, because, uh, first of all, especially where violent crime has been committed, uh, I think uh, people are in such shock. The soul is in such a state of shock that it doesn't depart immediately. And so there would be uh, very dramatic impressions, apparitional impressions, uh, still on the scene. And also where you have horrific crime, rape, and horrific murders uh, being committed, uh, that draws a very negative spirit energy. Some of the perpetrators of these crimes, I'm convinced, are under the influence of demonic entities who are feeding off that violence, and they incite the violence. They encourage the person to uh, to commit these acts. So they're on, on the scene, too. They're still uh, feeding off that energy. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that uh, these people uh, can be spontaneous witnesses. It must shake them to their very core. Rosemary, always a pleasure. The website, visionaryliving.com. We'll talk to you in December. Thank you, Richard. It's been a very lively evening. All right, thank you. Thank you to Tim Spreen, Albert Denzel, back next week with Gail Nix-Jackson talking about the Orville Nix-JFK film. Hope you'll be along for that. So long.